Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ahoy there, Nick Cage. And don't pretend like you don't know who I am. What do you see? We cut the chit-chat a-hole. All right, I'm a little tired, a little wired, and I think I deserve a little appreciation. Uh, shame on you! I lost just a little bit of control there, but now everything's cool. Ha-ha! Or whatever movies with Wesley and I what up and welcome to or whatever movies i'm your co-host iris the virus and i'm here with my older brother <laughs> wesley and today we're talking i can't do the accent today we're talking about a surprise entry nicholas cage movie the wings of hell aka con air not in france circa 1997 not yeah. in france nope the wings of hell that's what it was called. I guess con <laughs> means stupid person in France. And Cameron Poe, despite all outward appearances, is anything but a stupid person. That leads me to my first con air segue. Is Cameron Poe a smart person? Uh, see, we have to tread carefully here. Because we did a lot of damage to Italians, uh, the integrity of Italians, with our Moonstruck review. Because we just <laughs> kept doing the accent. And the Southern accent... See, the, here's the problem. Many people consider the Southern accent to be indicative of kind of slowness or dumbness, right? But it's doubly compounded, I think, with Nicolas Cage, I think, doing an over-the-top kind of bad one. Oh, so man. he's like... <laughs> He's, Blee, like, he's killing me with the accent. Just get in the car, honey. Like I don't know. It's like post Forrest Gump or whatever. And maybe that would lead to him being, I mean, I guess he's smart, right? He's enterprise. I mean, he's smarter than Diamond Dog, who wrote two books in prison, and Cyrus the Virus, whose antics are long established legends of penal lore or whatever <laughs> okay yeah he uh, he does outsmart so to speak the other cons but in a very gumpian way <laughs> yeah. uh, like you know it's not coincidence that you brought up forrest gump in fact there are three forrest gump comparisons or connections the first being the accent um, which tom hanks probably does a little bit better actually quite a bit better what are the other two well, let's see. Is it does it have something to do with his kid that he's never seen until the kid is like five? Oh, good one. Nope, that's the fourth comparison apparently. Uh, no, his, his wife's name isn't Jenny. I don't know, man. <laughs> okay. Thinking too broadly, I guess. Did For Forrest never went through Vegas? No, he didn't. The first one's kind of racist. <laughs> oh, obviously. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, Bubba O. Baby O, aka Bubba O, son. I don't know how I missed that. How can they both be son? How can they both be son? How am I doing, son? You're going to be all right, son. It's just a southern thing. <laughs> so so you basically you're saying you agree. Well, I mean, sure. I mean, it's hard to not see Michael D. Williamson as anybody but Bubba, right? And <laughs> as, as always with like movies with heavy star power like this one, 
I was I looked to Kelly and I was like, "Do you recognize that guy?" And she's like, all scared of being racist. She's like, "Bubba, <laughs> really? <sighs> what's the what, what's the other one though?" Uh, <clears throat> Leonard Skinnerd. Oh yeah, Sweet Home Alabama, which is the dancing scene. Yep. Actually, it's the dancing scene in both movies. Yep. This is the discussion of how Gone Hair is actually the action version of <laughs> Forrest Gump. And our, our final surprise entry in our special series, Jerry Bruckheimer Month. Yep. <laughs> Nicholas Cage Month. And you know what, Wes? I have to say, I'm a little duded out. Like, I've got some dude fatigue. We've been watching a lot of dude-centric movies lately, but I'm really glad that you suggested Con Air for Nicolas Cage XL because I feel like I was missing a, a foundational brick in the Nicolas Cage structure until I saw Con Air. This is the first time I've oh seen my Con God. Air. Your first time seeing Con Air. Yeah, dude. For everyone else, it's been a quarter of a century. <laughs> This is Nicolas Cage as a true blue, bona fide, genuine article action star. Yeah, what did I say? I said first. What was his biggest moment? I thought it was uh, National Treasure, and then I decided it was The Rock. But here, he is The Rock. He's in purest form. He's at like 3% body fat, long established as not only a Jerry Bruckheimer staple, but also as an action star. He is riding the crest at this moment, right? All glistening and, and stuff. Flying I think high. also one of his most beloved roles. I feel like I didn't fully appreciate Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent because <laughs> <laughs> they featured this scene and now I know why. The moment when he when he reunites with, you know, with Hummingbird and little Casey Poe, like I just didn't understand the gravity of the moment. There's no G in there. It's just Hummingbird. Oh, Hummingbird. Yeah, and this was next to probably Face Off, the most depicted movie in Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, referring to the the rabid fandom uh, that Jave has for for Nicolas Cage. Yeah, I don't really think that I fully understood why the president's daughter character. What was he? The politician's daughter character was like Nicolas Cage is a legend. Like I didn't, I don't think I fully understood that until now. He. This is also the first time I felt any inkling of sexual attraction to Nicolas Cage. Like, <laughs> thanks for that tidbit of information. I appreciate you tipping me to the stirring of your loins. <laughs> when he gives her that smoldery bedroom eye look in the bar in the first scene, I was like, "Whoa! Wait, what was that? Who was? That? Wait, what?" What was that? Is that Nicolas Cage? And I was like really surprised. And at the very end, when he when he looks at her, this is like obviously a very like mom moment. But when he looks at when Casey Poe hugs his leg and then he looks at Monica Potter, I was like, oh, my God. It was like a sweet love attraction. Yep. He gives her these little knitted brows and the baby blues and he's all sweaty and oily. And I was like, damn, that's hot. Yeah, but how could you not? She's the glowing, wide-eyed Monica Potter of Counting Crows fame. This is the movie on which Adam Duritz based Mrs. Potter's lullaby. Yeah, he definitely uh, got all buff and worked out, going back to Nicolas Cage, and got down to like unhealthy body fat weights and, uh, and sold out the baby oil industry in the desert area of Utah where they filmed, probably. But uh, I didn't agree to this, man. This is me relenting to do Con Air. 
because we it's another Jerry Bruckheimer feature uh, of Nicolas Cage, and I was worried that it was going to date badly. Um, definitely some non-PC humor here, and I was worried how that would go over, and it's just like a rollicking hillbilly romp or whatever. But then I was transported, surprisingly, back to my young adulthood of sorts. I cannot deny that this movie is fun, however badly it dates. I mean, John Cusack doesn't look back on this movie fondly. John Malkovich doesn't look back on this movie fondly. And I was worried for that reason. But I, I look back to newly single me at all of, what, 21 years of age, going to see this movie and just living in the theater. Saw this one six times. <gasps> summer 1997. Whoa. And talking about Nicolas Cage's kind of the height of his fame, this was the same month that Face Off released in June of 1997. He's like on top of the world, man. Two of his biggest action hits. Whoa. And like all like in the physical specimen era of his life. Yeah. So that he could be accurately compared to John Travolta. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Face Off. Also haven't seen it. Yeah. Okay. Well, one day, separate enough from Nicolas Cage month, we can cover that one. When you're ready and when it's on a major streaming service that we're already paying for. I'm just saying now you can understand why when you proposed Nicolas Cage month, I was like, what? But no longer. But no longer. And Con Air is a fitting end to our Nicolas Cage month series. You're welcome. But uh, (laughs) hearkening back to glory days, you see the sign at one of the stops, gas is between a buck oh three and a buck oh eight. Wow. Yeah. Gone are those days. So everybody is fun and everybody is a character, right? Like a cartoon character and maybe kind of racist and maybe kind of discriminatory (laughs) or whatever. Did you find this movie to be offensive? I mean, this is a movie that I, I'm going to dare say suggest that we're endeared to Garland Green's cannibal character. <laughs> like we, just that one shot of the kid waving as the plane goes by so we know that she's not dead. We kind of like the mass murderer that all the other convicts are afraid of. <laughs> that is a very weird filmmaking gift to... um make not only the Garland Green character, but just the reviled by association Steve Buscemi, who just plays like the slimiest of bad guys. Obviously nothing against the actor. Personally, I think he's an amazing actor, especially having just come off a surprise viewing, a spontaneous viewing of Fargo on the plane. Overall, the Garland Green character kind of underutilized. Like he, I guess he gets his little, he gets some kind of moment at the very end, but I wasn't exactly sure why. And otherwise, don't you want him to throw down and like eat somebody on the plane? No, because that would have definitely turned it for us. This isn't a zombie movie, but the fact that we're all happy, the girl like, look, he's pleased at Vegas. I'm glad he's having fun kind of thing <laughs> it is, is definitely weird. Leaves a weird taste in the mouth. Ew, eh? no, eh? stop. Yeah. No, (laughs) he doesn't have to do a tremendous amount because his fame precedes him like Hannibal Lecter style very clearly right down to his worming his way out of it to be part of society again. Hmm. Like he rolls into the mask and the score is going and everyone's dead like that's Garland Green, man. And all these hard asses (laughs) are are like terrified of him. That's all we need. And he takes off the thing and he makes little quips and stuff. And you're like still you're scared of him because he doesn't have to move. Like if you get within biting distance, he'll snap at you. Maybe. <laughs> and yet 
they are happy to just have him join the party and, you know, sing them all to death. So you're saying that the button was as confusing to you as it was to me? I mean, sure. It demonstrates how clearly the, what this movie's agenda was and not being scary or us horrified at the atrocities that these many prisoners. I mean, Danny Trejo is still meant to be like a likable character and he's trying to rape people willy nilly in this movie. <laughs> I think also coming from him just being like the quintessential tough guy with the tattoos and everything. You knew we were going to see the tattoos, but I was surprised. Like in a modern remake, they it would be a little bit more Shawshank Redemption, right? Where they would be, the crimes would be ambiguous and, you know, hey, we're all here because we all got screwed by the lawyer. And, you know, we're all innocent. Don't you know that? But uh, here, I mean, all the crimes were on, dis on display. I mean, Johnny, what was his name? Johnny 23? Mm-hmm. Oh, man. And so I guess the more deplorable, despicable they are, the more we're okay with them dying in terrible fashion and being overcome by the American badass that is Cameron Poe. Such a badass. But tell me, why did you, oh, man, when you brought up Johnny 23? It's it's absurd that these characters would be so heinous and you get it that he's just an ultra criminal or whatever Cyrus the virus and he's smart, but he's in there for a reason. It was like kidnap and rape and murder and all these terrible things. And they outline everyone's crimes except for Sally can't dance the, uh, the the lady one like we don't know what that person did to go to prison. Like Sally can't dance isn't even deserving of a full punch. All it <laughs> takes is a smack. Is it offensive? I mean, you know my affinity for this movie, but when he sat when Dave Chappelle, who improvised a lot of his lines, sat down next to the dude and, and like lit him on fire. And he's like, the last Mohican is burning, man. <laughs> and he like talked about him chanting and shit like, isn't this movie, isn't this movie as offensive as I feared it would be, which is why I tried to omit it from the filmography selections we were covering for Nicolas Cage month. Well, I mean, is it any more offensive than other depictions of minorities in Jerry Bruckheimer films? Well, no, especially for the Michael Bay ones. But this isn't Michael Bay. This is Simon West. And if you're like, who exactly? What happened to Simon West? Uh, I looked him up. Tomb Raider 2001. Angelina Jolie was kind of his last big one. And then he did The Expendables 2. But an action director just went by the wayside. And I'm not really sure what the reason for that is. But I wondered why, you know, John Malkovich talks about how he did this one. Like, they were like, so, well, you know, what made you want to do Con Air? I tried to get him on a red carpet. And he's like, money. John Cusack doesn't even remember filming this movie because he, <laughs> he thinks it's a bad movie. I don't know. I, it's obviously fun. And it's obviously a joyous movie despite everyone being terrible. And I'm trying to figure out why that is. Maybe because it's just such a, I, what did you call it? Like a romp? A rambunctious romp? <laughs> yeah. I also think that there's something deeper to Con Air, which leads me to my extensive theory that I alluded to before, offline. You have an extensive theory about Con Air's appeal. These guys are bad dudes, right? But they're honest yep. in their badness, which we've talked about before. Is there's something that's genuinely likable about that? I mean, the closest we got to a bad guy in this was the DEA agent, which is just so ironic. And we can get to the <sighs> DEA U.S. Marshal feud. Right. Probably won't come as a surprise to you that Cameron Poe is a Christ figure. He talks about being God. <laughs> I'm going to show you that God does exist. <laughs> well, first, so he has this arc, this God arc, where he's like, I'm not God. I forget why he says that, but it's like, uh, yes, Captain Obvious. And then later he's like, I'm going to show you there is a God. Is he talking about himself? Yeah. 
I don't know. Maybe. Dude, Cameron Poe. But is, isn't Forrest Gump a Christ figure? Absolutely. So Cameron Poe is not God, and then he shows Babio that there is a God. He raises Babio essentially from the dead, a.k.a. Lazarus. <laughs> Right. Also, he dies, quote unquote, in the plane crash and then also rises in order to claim his hero status. (laughs) Right. After chasing John Malkovich down on a motorcycle. (laughs) Well, you know, you got to take some creative liberties here. (laughs) Yeah. And also Johnny 23, a.k.a. John 23. Am I going to blow your mind here? Uh, it depends. So I was like, what, is he credited as John 2-3 on IMDb? No. But you're referring to a Bible verse. And if this Bible, if you're going to quote a Bible verse and it holds true, then I'll be impressed. What do you got? (laughs) When the wine ran short, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. (laughs) In the parable where Jesus changes water into wine. Yes. I'm just saying when they needed a solution, Cameron Poe steps up. Cameron Poe makes good out of a very, very bad situation. All right. That's kind of broad. I thought you were going to suggest the insulin was the wine. Oh, no, no. That nourishes baby O's soul. (laughs) It's a little broader than that. Nicolas Cage would have been buff enough to roll back the stone on his grave, right? And the definite uh, Easter reference illusion. Even though her, her birthday was July 14th. There was definitely an Easter bunny. He was totally Jesus. Oh, that's what I'm saying. And this is just surface. We're not even digging, whether intentional or not. Perhaps the reason that Con Air works on more than just a surface level is because there's something dramatic and central to who we are as humans. There's something primal about Con Air. I mean, it definitely appealed to me on a primal <laughs> 21-year-old level. If ever Jerry Bruckheimer made a movie for 17-year-old boys that didn't even feature Michael Bay, this is the one. I think this movie defines guilty pleasure for me. Poster quote. They crashed two planes in this movie. And I thought that this was, I was going to suggest this is the way you crash a plane in a movie as opposed to what Christopher Nolan did in Tenet. But I'm going to take that back because... There's all the lore surrounding this movie and the fact that the Sands Hotel was scheduled for for demolition. And Jerry Bruckheimer was like, wait, in his Jerry Bruckheimer style, you've got a building to destroy. I've got a movie that will destroy it. So they crashed a fuselage into the lobby of the Sands Hotel and Casino. But I'm afraid kind of ineffectually. I think that Sandino's plane where Cusack dropped the crane and sheared off the tail was a better plane destruction than the Con Air. Oh, that was great. That was great. And it was like a last minute improvisation on John Cusack's part, like to just stop at all costs the plane. Yeah, but it, it also set up the absolute worst catchphrase right before a kill in movie history. Which is? Sandino tumbles out of the plane and he's covered in gasoline. And he's like, no, don't. And Cyrus, the virus, is already with the cigarette. And he goes, sigh. And the virus says, Anara, and annihilates him with the cigarette flame burst. Man, that is the worst. It was just somebody wrote that line, and he had to be loaded with the response, and he was just waiting for him to say sigh. It was really bad. This was the era of 90s catchphrases. I mean, every Arnie movie we've ever reviewed is riddled with them. 
Yeah. It was typified in the 80s for sure. I'm going to go so far as to say that when Nicolas Cage jumps through the, the window or whatever to uh, escape the fireball from that plane explosion, that is the ultimate demonstration of Nicolas Cage flappy hand. Oh, yeah? Maybe it wasn't even him. It was like his stunt double, but he was like all flappy armed as he went through the through the fireball. <laughs> uh, he's not ticky in this. No, not at all. He's definitely in full possession of his faculties. He's a ranger, man. He's a registered, he's a lethal weapon. Yes. See, this is, and that, when when someone referred to him as like a weapon of, of war or like a an instrument of war, what does the judge say when he's sentenced? Well, number one, that's an unrealistic sentence because he, he is totally in the right. But you just couldn't tell because it was, this is Nicolas Cage embracing his Coppola roots because it was definitely a Coppola style fight in the rain. Mm. a la the outsiders mm -hmm. but yep. yeah he just said your training means that you're above civilians and that you are a trained weapon of war or whatever right and this is pretty early in the film and when he and when the judge said that i was like oh man another rambo movie what is wesley doing <laughs> <laughs> seriously from rambo to the gray man to con air like that's where my dude fatigue is setting in Yep, it's dude summer. Dude. Hot dude summer. Hot dude. Ooh, you added the hot dude. Whatever. With the gray man, there's two of the hot dudes. There's Cap and, and Ken and all the Nicolas Cage. I don't know that Sean Connery qualifies as a hot dude. Well, he's Bond. I mean, isn't he the epitome of sex appeal? I guess. It's a little bit weird, though, because obviously we know from his intense stare that Cameron Poe can throw down. And uh, Humbird was like, I was hoping the army could help that guy grow up. I mean, I think he did. He just, was he a wild child? Because he seems pretty calm, cool, and collected in this movie. I think it's all just simmering under the surface. I think that he got organized in the in the military. All simmering just under the surface, the tough guy. Chicks love that. Yeah, dude. So he it's a thin kind of veil or a thin veneer o over his otherwise primal weapon of war self. <laughs> um, but man, the Trisha Poe, an awfully long-suffering... Not beleaguered. We've talked about these what these wives, the long suffering, stand by your man no matter what the cost. Why? I mean, she waited how many years while he's in the military, and then she I waits think it was another. Seven. So she's basically she's waiting fourteen years for the you know to have a life with this man. Man, that's a <laughs> that's a lot of time, and being a single mom and raising an adorable daughter like that's you know that's just a lot. But Trisha Poe and Cameron and his buddies and Baby O. They kind of validate this weird prison fantasy I have. Um, go like, on. That's the nicest prison experience I've ever seen, where you just, like, get all fit, and you write letters, and the heart grows fonder, and you, like... Yeah, and you do push-ups, and you love your Sally, and yeah. as long as you're not an e-block. <laughs> I guess not, right? That's where the, the long-termers are, or whatever. Yeah, or the guy with, like, 15 years left on the set where Billy Bedlam is. Right, exactly. Now, Cameron Poe's in the good prison with Bubba. Apparently, and so this is where Brian and I definitely differ. He's like, this is, fr prison is like his worst fear, which, you know, I, I in reality, <laughs> it's probably <laughs> like fair. It's safe for Brian to have that fear, though. The chances of Brian ending up in a maximum security <laughs> prison. 
<laughs> you mean the chances of him surviving in a max security prison? Right. But I don't think he has to worry. It's okay. It's like uh, Kelly being afraid because she believes firmly her death will come at the jaws of a big cat. What? But the likelihood of her, I'm like, fine, have that fear because the chances of you being eaten by a giant cat are pretty slim, like Brian <laughs> going to prison. <laughs> I agree. Although, is there? There's got to be like a specific name for that kind of phobia, like the giant death by giant cat phobia or fear. I kind, I tend to think, and probably also equally irrationally, that a regimented prison type life might suit me. You always figured that's where you'd write a book, right? Yeah, exactly. You write your book, you get your juris doctorate, you help all the people in prison, you know, <laughs> commute their sentences, you. Um, you know, re- eat really well. I guess you don't eat really well, but you work out and you have you know a regimented lifestyle, and you go out and get on the yard and get some sun and write some poetry and stuff. And so, I mean, obviously, a very idealized prison experience for Cameron Poe, and we have very real in- intel that it's not quite so nice. Like, did you know that an inmate we know of claims that he can only brush his teeth over a toilet basin? Why is that? Not allowed to brush your teeth over a sink. I don't know. Prison rule. Yeah, there's all kinds of weird rules. And and the danger is real. You can be stabbed by a carrot in prison. But this thing is... I I, so the problem with prison is in this situation, you got Babio, who he must have lucked into because they have a real, like, uh, bromance or whatever. But also Cameron Poe is ostensibly a good guy. He accidentally killed that dude. I don't know that he particularly felt remorse because I think that the unintentional homicide, what do you call it? Manslaughter. Right. But it's also involuntary. Involuntary Mm. manslaughter was well justified. And karma would suggest that he would have as sympathetic and caring a Sally as Baby O. If I were left alone in prison, I'd be fine. You would? No, I'd probably have to like... See, the problem is in prison, you have to align yourself, like it or not. Your best chance for safety is to align yourself with groups based on your nationality. You stick with your race and you don't, and, and we don't have a race. We are outside of a race that we could cling to firmly. We're like a weak magnet on the fridge that like falls off if you put too thick a, a piece of cardboard under it or whatever. It's like we can hang on for a little while, but if you jostle it just a little bit, it's going to wear thin. You mean like you can hang with the vatos for just... Right. Like I can't side with the Mexicans. or Yeah. They'll be like, well, like they'll be fair weather friends. But if there were a Japanese gang or whatever and it came to a turf war, I'd be hosed. I mean, couldn't. Yeah. You know what bothers me most about Con Air? Colmini and the authoritative Cyrus the Virus, Virus Grissom, played by John Malkovich. These are the two uh, elder statesmen of Con Air. Yeah, both younger than me. Oh, come on. Oh, come Colm on. Colmini with his saggy neck, and he's like, I don't care what this kid says, kind of vibe, older than, younger than me. I'm older than that dude. Well, really? Yeah. He's, yeah. He, he, the saggy neck kind of turns into a little bit of a waddle when he gets really upset. Right. He's like the midlife crisis Corvette cool car introduced in Act 1, so it's got to be destroyed in Act 3 kind of dude. I mean, he he deserved that, though, right? That's that's the whole point. But like all things where the terrible things happen and we brush it under the rug for Con Air, his turn was patently unrealistic. He was like, when we get back or whatever, you're done here. You're done, kid. Like being all mean to, to John Cusack. And then at the end, he was like, gave him the keys. And he's like, you know what? To be honest, I was bored of that card. No, you weren't. <laughs> this is Con Air trying to wrap... You know, death and destruction and entrails into a nice, tidy bow. Agent Malloy didn't mean any of that. They were all just posturing and posing the entire time. Oh, yeah? It was just a power struggle, nothing more. 
but obviously a very destructive power struggle. Like, well, who did have jurisdiction there? Aren't there clear protocols for this kind of stuff? I got I got no idea. But Cameron Poe still being technically an inmate until he gets to his original prison or whatever. And Babio, everybody on the plane was a convict. Poe notwithstanding, in real life, they would have blowed that plane out of the air, especially over unpopulated desert like that. So John Cusack's just really convincing? Yep. Because any chance, like, Poe was like, what, one of maybe 15 people? That was maybe good based on that dude's assumption. I mean, it was basically diehard on a prison transport plane, right? The cop on the ground uh, connecting with the so-called good guy on the plane amidst a, you know, in the structure uh, filled with criminals or whatever. But uh, the idea that he would save everybody and it would be okay and nobody else would die was as unrealistic as his initial prison sentence of seven years for rightfully killing that dude. (laughs) It might have been a professional failure, but it was a personal win. I mean, aren't you happy for Agent Larkin when he when you see him see the Poe reunion? I'm happy for everybody. <laughs> happy for Cameron Poe. I'm happy for everybody that didn't die, including Garland Green. Which is so weird. Because it's con hair and because it taps into the primal part of our brain that wants cool <laughs> stuff. That wants cool stuff, but also wants some kind of universal dramatic narrative playing out. I think it's an important distinction for you to say you're happy for everyone who lives because you're not happy that Ving Rhames dies. No, not necessarily. Because is he any less good or bad than the other convicts? Uh, No. He called uh, Poe a hillbilly. That's not cool. I can't not associate Ving Rhames with his very, very likable Mission Impossible character. Yep. So, And this is coming off of Pulp Fiction, where he also <laughs> plays a good bad guy. Definitely also an arch criminal who has some notion of loyalty. But they definitely packed this little plane, and by this plane I mean a giant cargo transport plane with so many actors that are immediately recognizable and fun. Like, you can't help it but go along for the ride, right? Go along for the ride on Con Airlines. So how do you want to wrap up this incredible series that has included Con Air, The Rock, Leaving Las Vegas, Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, National Treasure, Moonstruck? Matchstick Man, the way that we did with most Nicolas Cage movies with a solid all right rating. Nicolas Cage at one time was the biggest thing ever. And we really hope, like Cameron Poe, like any of his characters, we really hope that in the end he comes out all right and makes it makes uh, his way back to success. Which I think he did, at the very least, in us acknowledging him in Nicolas Cage Month XL, which included two Nicolas Cage movies outside of the month of August of 2022. You're welcome. And thank you to our listeners who checked out our Nicolas Cage Month episodes at orwhatevermovies.com or wherever you get podcasts. You got an all right from Wes, a good from Iris, and that concludes Nicolas Cage Month. If you enjoyed this series, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast, follow us on social, and get in touch. 818-835-0473 or whatevermovies at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening and sayonara. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. 
Subscribe to the Nature Pack podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the The Candle Candle Power Power Hour. Electric acid.